With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Got a mixture of boxing history and contemporary stuff today because there's a lot of stuff going on in boxing, which is kind of surprising for December. But either way, I'm here with my dude, Araspina, copybox operator and fellow fight history and I guess contemporary also fight fanatic. What's up, man? How you doing? To a degree. To a degree. I don't follow it as, as hardcore as everybody else. It's kind of tough sometimes, man. Boxing Twitter keeps me updated, but yeah, right. everything's going good, my friend. How are you? <laughs> Doing all right, dude. You know, we, but we definitely have some slightly spicy stuff to talk about today because of these current goings on. It was a on. busy weekend, wasn't it? <sighs> Man, and and also the the action continued into the week with the uh, the Japanese card that yeah. we. Man, they they don't give a shit when they do big cards, bro. Like they're doing that shit at two thirty in the morning on a Wednesday, and they don't give a shit. And I respect the hell out of it. You know that fucking respect it. But Dude, uh, it's, it's it's crazy because like usually I can time um those Japanese cards pretty well because everyone you know usually wakes up around like four in the morning or something to get ready. And I'm look, I'm not gonna wake up at four in the morning to watch a full card. If I want, if I need to watch the undercard, I'll catch up on that later. Like I, and I'm usually timed out that like where I'm leaving for work. Those days are long gone for me, bro. (laughs) Like those days are long gone for me. (laughs) Totally. I, you get it, man. I get with the kids, everything totally. But, um, you know, for me, like, so I could time it out that like when I'm getting ready for work or leaving for work, I'm on the subway. I'm able to watch the main event while that's going on. And it didn't happen this time. The main event actually started earlier. I woke up. I think my phone got jolted at like 630 in the morning. I was like, the fuck? I'm like, ah, ain't nothing happening. And then I just kind of half awake scroll Twitter and they're talking about people walking to the ring. And I was like, right, are you kidding me? So I had to go wash over my face, try to like, you know, slap myself a little bit because I don't drink coffee or anything like that. And just, yeah. Japanese boxing, like you said, they don't care. But it's so good that who are we to even complain about it? We really don't. We just kind of suck it up and just, you know, chalk it up as saying, hey, something we got to do. You know, the the Japanese boxing scene, we've talked about at least historically, uh, you know, Joe Koizumi being one of the main relayers of Japanese fight news during times when we didn't have much video of it. And Asia then, in general at one point too, you know? But yeah, that's true. And he he traveled other places as well, but he was obviously the the big Japanese fight guy. And in recent years, we've been able to follow far more directly with what's going on in Japanese boxing. And it's become far more apparent that the scene there is like, you know, more busy and far more rich than many people realized. And it's really cool. Um, but of course, it's Noya Inoue that sits atop of the heap of not just Japanese boxing, but dude, pretty much the world right now. It's it's wild. It's really awesome to think about that. A guy that, you know, has never weighed. I mean, he's moving up to 122 pretty soon, but like 
for a fighter in that lower weight division from Japan, a foreigner. And usually in boxing, most, of, um, most, especially in America, no one's ever really warmed up to the lower weight division, especially a foreign fighter. And now, like you said, with the advent of like YouTube and just like our access to have, be able to watch boxing anywhere in the world, anytime we want to, you know, if you're willing to put the effort in, um, we can, we can get firsthand uh, to watch these guys now. And it's, of course, when you're able to watch the monster, you're going to fall in love with him immediately, man. The guy is the total package. And there's not more, there's probably not um, a more at nickname in boxing than what Inoue carries. Like, he's incredible. It's nuts, dude. So that's that's precisely why we're, uh, that's what it's going to be kind of like the focus, I think, later to uh, later on in the episode. And we're going to talk a little bit of history, too. But I guess if that's cool with you, I wanted to kind of get the other spicy shit out of the way. How spicy are we getting though? Like, are we talking habanero? Are we talking like, you know, ghost pepper kind of in between here? It's, it's like, you know, it's like nacho jalapeno. So it's like not that spicy, but spicy enough that it might, you know, it might hurt the next day. So (laughs) we'll see how much it hurts tomorrow. Better hurt of this, Ian. It, 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 it ain't that, it ain't that spicy in my opinion. It's just, I think it's more just uh divisive or it's more, you know, polarizing right now because it's the hot button issue in, uh, on social media with boxing because it just recently happened. So this past weekend, Terrence Crawford, I mean, if you're a hardcore boxing fan at all, you kind of understand the lead up and why this happened. Terrence Crawford fought David Avanesian on uh, BLK Prime or Black Prime. I don't really know that much about it. And I only found out about it when Terrence Crawford announced his fight was going to be on it. So I then again, I don't follow the apps in general. That being said, it was a big surprise. A lot of people didn't really know what to make of it. And I think that most people kind of shot it down. And most people, I think, were like, eh, you know, that's not a great look. Because the entire idea was that Terrence Crawford was in negotiations with uh, Errol Spence. It sounded like everything was pretty much done. They just needed a date and were, you know, haggling on the date. And then last minute, Terrence Crawford was actually, I'm going to fight David Avanesian on. And so it was a big thing because Avanesian's not an unrecognizable fighter. Many people do know at least who he is from, you know, the last couple of years, him being uh, on the edge of contendership in the welterweight division, but know that he's not a big name. And then on top of that, to kind of have that already packaged up, it didn't really look great. Overall, it looked like that was already kind of waiting in the wings. It's like Ed during the negotiations with Spence. And so a lot of people, I think, were really questioning how this was all going to work. Point being, and that's why the way I uh, describe the lead up is because this all seemed, I think, for a lot of people, very suspect and kind of second rate. Fast forward to the fight. Terrence Crawford, I think, to most people, proved that he's clearly one of the best fighters in the world as well and beat the crap out of David Avanesian or at the very least dominated him and then knocked him out in the sixth round. The The big problem was that during the fifth round or so, it was noticed that both of Terrence Crawford's gloves, his Everlast gloves, busted open and so again i don't want to emphasize everybody talking shit and trashing this event but this seemed to kind of add to that idea i think for many 
that it already looked second rate or it already looked kind of like a bad look. And then on top of that, a knockout coming immediately after the dude's gloves were busted and it was allowed to keep going makes it look even worse. So that's kind of where we're at as far as the discussion. Um, Everlast released a statement that they were basically taking responsibility for poor material or manufacturing of the gloves. Whew. But that's where we're at is people trying to understand where to go with this. Like what it, are Terrence Crawford and Errol are Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence history that really happens besides like I mean with the fight able to go on with the gloves being torn like that I mean because we've had other instances where gloves were torn but the fight was obviously stopped while they were repaired and then the fight continued soon afterwards you know most notably Ali against um Henry Cooper I believe in the Donald Curry fight one but not both of his gloves torn um at some point during the fight against I forgot which opponent it was but those are instances, you know what I mean? And they were rectified immediately. I... It it happens. It's not unheard of that a glove, something might tear. It's usually something like the stitching or some shit like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, things happen. But like, you know, for what was this fight in Nebraska? Yes, in Omaha, yeah. So, in Omaha. And as our buddy Gray who works for BoxRec and, you know, works closely with, obviously has well, um, well knowledge about all the commissions all over the country and knows how they work and their inner workings and everything like that, called it out immediately that he was like, oh yeah, of course out there, they're not going to give a shit about a couple of torn gloves and whether the fight goes on or not. Well, and, and I mean, like some people might listen to that and say like, what, I don't understand. What does that mean? Look, dude, every, yeah, every state commission, has their own independent, every state has their own independent commission. Now they're all supposed to be linked through the ABC, the Association of Boxing Commissions in the US. They're all supposed to be linked and communicate with one another and have the same basic ground rules. But of course that doesn't always happen and some states are better than others at overseeing what the fuck is going on in their state as far as combat sports. So the problem is that it's very top heavy as far as quality. Uh, I'm not trying to just like, you know, name a handful of states, but I'm just saying the general thought, the consensus is places like California, Nevada, New York, maybe New Jersey, but to a lesser extent in recent years, but because of Atlantic City, but, you know, New Jersey, perhaps Florida, but again, also to a lesser extent in recent years because of their other issues. But, you know, those states and Texas, perhaps the, these bigger states that are probably the busiest states for big boxing tend to have the best commissions or the most robust commissions or the best oversight, et cetera. A lot of other Midwest states in the South, et cetera. A lot of these other places around the country are generally thought to have bad commissions or they're understaffed. You know what I mean? Like, it's not always just they're like total pieces of shit work for these commissions, but they're understaffed, you know, overworked and have to work, you know, several events a week or something like that. So Nebraska, yeah, is not thought of as a very busy or high quality commission. And you could envision a scenario in which in a state like Nebraska, something could get overlooked like, so I don't want to just explain and fucking mansplain to every viewer and <clears throat> viewer and listener everywhere, but you're, you're supposed to come with two pairs of gloves. 
a team for a fighter is supposed to arrive with two pairs of gloves, one pair that they're wearing and a backup pair in case anything happens. Supposedly, there were a pair of backup gloves that were identical for Terrence Crawford, but that they were waiting to replace them. So that's where kind of Everlast's statement comes into play, I guess. Everlast released a statement that said essentially something happened during the manufacturing process that wound up resulting in, you know, the torn gloves during the competition and we're addressing it. Mm. Um, but dude, that in itself almost blows my mind because it's like the whole timing of everything was like, this is precisely why you fucking replace them immediately because you didn't replace them. And in the process of not replacing them, the dude got blasted. So you can't take back the fucking potential neurological damage that this dude suffered. I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny, but it's just no, it's this, more like this, a flabbergasted type laugh. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost like sad that I'm one of that. Nobody's really fucking putting this to fucking writing. Like, you know, like nobody's being like this dude got fucked up moments after this gloves tour nobody did anything about it nobody i mean and i know people are questioning it but like what is anybody doing where are all of this brigade of writers going what the fuck where are they sponsored by everlast (laughs) writing for some website sponsored by everlast you know what i'm saying like fuck off you know that's why it looks so bad dude it looks so stupid uh and and then on top of that it's almost like it, you're admitting the liability on your part because it's like it it makes it look like, oh, and on top of that, I'm sorry, a really important part of their statement was that they said there was no tampering on part of Team Crawford. How the fuck could they know that? How could they know that? And why would you put that in writing? You just took all of the fucking burden off of Team Crawford and said, actually, it was us. So what if somebody is smart and David Avanasian has a, an attorney that goes like, I mean, he probably doesn't, but what if he did? And they're just like, well, Everla- thanks, Everlast. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Appreciate it because you just gave us right there a fucking, you know. Anyway, it looks really bad. Um, uh, so- certainly got a good look and still being talked about today. Like, if none of that happened, this just would have been another, like, whatever fight. And more so, it just would have been complaining that Crawford took an unnecessary fight when in reality the whole world was looking yeah, forward to the Spence fight. Like everybody in boxing yeah. the world was looking forward to the Spence fight and by all accounts if you go by what twitter was saying and this was like people that you can actually like reputable people that you can go by everybody was saying at that point it looked like the fight was being made negotiations were ongoing even guys like steven espinoza um and other executives who usually will never comment on stuff. Everyone was caught off guard. It was like, you know, okay, it's it's moving yeah. forward. Everyone was this caught was, off guard. Yeah, completely. And, you know, and it, it still doesn't make any sense. Like, this whole thing that happened, it, it's still kind of surreal that the whole... I, I haven't even watched it, but by all accounts, you know, from the broadcast and everything, you know, the whole card from up to down, I, I don't know. It's, it's crazy, man. But then the glove situation, too, because... It just came out in the other day on Twitter, like the past day or so, the photos of the gloves. And I'm sorry, man, but you look at them shits and they look like they've been used and abused through, like what I joked with you earlier. They look like they went through each, you know, six of the Robinson um, LaMada fights. 
Like they were very, very worn out. This wasn't gloves that just looked like they were split and they still looked like clean or whatever. I don't know if it was the type of phone or the camera, whatever it could be, but like they just look old. They look worn. They just different. It's it's strange, dude. I don't know. <clears throat> could it just be an offsite, something like that? A strange, crazy mishap? Sure. I have no idea what it is, but it's at the end of the day, it just doesn't look good for anyone involved. Right. And I'm I'm not trying to suggest that Avanesian would have won had it not happened. You know, obviously, and I'm not trying to say Everlast planned this. I'm no. not trying to say that it was, yeah, any sort of conspiracy or corruption. I'm simply saying that it's a really bad look, and at best, it looks like incompetence in during an event that was already like people that where the concern was already really high that it was an incompetently planned and execute, executed event. And so point point being the result and what we saw and what happened didn't really do a whole lot to dispel that notion. Didn't really do a whole lot to contradict it. If anything, it just added to it because it just added to more of a fiasco. You know what I mean? And, so. and you know what? One other thing that this does or what it doesn't do for Terrence Crawford is it does not help him in the negotiations for a Spence fight, dude. It just makes it look even worse because he comes back to the negotiating table. And first of all, based on, uh, you know, based on the kind of social media trending and whatnot, it sounds like either he got really overpaid for this or wasn't getting paid exactly what he claimed. And he's going to go back to the negotiating table if they even do go back to the negotiating table and say, you know, look at look at what I did in the meanwhile. It was this absolute fucking fiasco that did not a whole lot for my legacy. <laughs> you know, and and even if even if Errol Spence winds up facing Keith Thurman, which is a fight that not a ton of people really seem to want, but even so, Keith Thurman's a better option than Ivanasian. And assuming Errol Spence wins, he he again just has more fuel to come back to the negotiating table. So it's it was a bad move by by Crawford. Oh, it's totally. You got you have Keith Thurman or um the regular welterweight uh, WBA champion over there. Um, Stan, how do you pronounce his name? Stanionosius. Stanionis. Stanionis. Both of them much much of a better opponent than Evanesia, who again was not a bad fighter, but just a guy that didn't deserve a shot at one of the top guys like Crawford. Like I think I was clamoring. Nobody. And when he's when he was like, I'm fighting David Evanesia, and people were like, Dava, who is that? What? <laughs> He was a guy that like I thought would have been a good opponent for someone like well Boots would have destroyed him too, but like yeah, he would have been a good opponent for someone like that or uh like Ugas or something. Like they might have made for a decent opponent, not for someone like Crawford at the elite. That you're gonna change the expense fight that's a career legacy fight, that the fight that everybody in boxing's been clamoring for. Yeah, and and, and ultimately so, he got screwed. So I'm not even trying to shit on him. I feel bad for the guy. I, you know, well, I mean, it's his fault though, at the end of the day for doing that, because if you go through, if you listen to back and forth with the negotiations that went on it and they were talking and that Crawford said that they had some private investor backer that was going to offer them this amount of money and all that. I don't know. I, I you know, if you oh, want to read that, seriously, but whatever Crawford's doing, I mean, he just, I think he needs a whole new PR group behind him and a number of other things, but yeah, it's going to be tough to make this fight happen now. I, and I'm a fan. I like. I've mentioned it. Many I, times. I like the guy. It's just, 
It's, I, it's I respect the hell of him. I think he's still probably pound for pound the best in the world if it comes skill wise out in the out there. But I, it's, it's just it's tough to defend, dude. It's just tough to defend. That's all you know. Yeah, yeah, very mind boggling decision. But hey, this is boxing. We should be used to this by now. Yeah, and I mean, I, it's just something we needed to talk about because it's that's the on the hearts well, and minds of the boxing folks for right now. But yeah, it's it's just sucks, dude, especially to see one of the highest level fighters in the world right now to be going through this type of Louis Resto, Billy Collins type of bullshit. Okay, no, it's not like that. It's not. That's an exaggeration. But still, it's just why it's it's low rent, bro. It's low rent. Doesn't make boxing look any better. Totally. That being said, thankfully, something that did make boxing look a lot better. Let's well, actually, you know what, dude? I was gonna ask you about this Teofimo Lopez uh business. Oh, so I mean, sure. um I was gonna ask you about what your thoughts on that fight were, like, you know, just kind of brief thoughts on that fight and who you thought won or which way you thought it should have gone, blah, blah, blah. Uh, because that was the kind of the second issue before the Inoue fight went down. Mm-hmm. I actually worked it. That's true. Yeah. 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 I was, um, I counted. That's how uh, I knew that. That's why I knew the punch stats were so accurate. Yeah. Like, what can I say? Right. Experience. Um, but, um, yeah, I counted Sandor Martin for that fight. And, um, it, you know, it's tough. I had at the end of the fight, I knew he wasn't going to get the decision, even though I felt he deserved it. And Lopez was much more aggressive as you knew he would be. And the thing about boxing, and as people are listening to the show, they understand what most would most judges, even if the aggressor is not being effective, if he's the favorite and he's being aggressive, they're usually going to favorably give him rounds, even if he doesn't deserve it. Martin was landing the better punches. He wasn't as um, active as Lopez, especially in the early rounds. I think um, in the first couple of rounds, I don't have the stats in front of me, but he only threw a handful of punches and only landed like five punches or six punches around. But at the same time, he dropped Lopez early. He was landing the cleaner shots. And as he was landing, he just looked like he was controlling the flow of the fight. Even though Lopez was aggressive, he just looked awkward. He looked uneasy. And it just nothing was, you know, nothing was working for him. Martin was the look like that. He just looked like he was in control. And so it was a close fight, but I thought Martin definitely um, edged it. And, but I wasn't surprised that the judges were, you know, going to go Lopez this way. And I still wasn't surprised too. I wanted the wide, um, wide scores as it was. Bullshit? Yes. Surprise? No, because that's how boxing usually is. They favor aggressive guys. And especially if, like I just said, if one's the favorite, they're always going to go with that because they're just watching that one view of the fight and just have that in their mind, as opposed to watching the actual work that is going on. Even though Martin was moving backwards and he was, you know, looked like he was running as, you know, um, Lopez called and a couple of um, old farts in the industry were saying two on Twitter. Let's <laughs> 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 just say it how it is, right? Um, Straight up. That wasn't running. That was effective boxing. Because when he got in the corner, like those check hooks were landing frequently. Right hands were landing frequently. Lopez was walking into him all the time. He was uh, Martin's jab was beautiful that night. Everything was working really well for him. And Lopez was befuddled a lot of the time in the fight. And just look at the body language after the fight, too. You know, going around asking people, do I still have it? Do I still got it? it it's clearly not there. Martin's going to be in trouble for any guy in that division. So, Man, he's he's so aggravating, Lopez is. I mean, it's, dude, and he came out of not nowhere, but that that uh, stoppage of Comey, massive. Yes. 
and then the win over Lomachenko, it was like, wow, you know, we got something here. It, we, this guy's young, you know, he's, he seems to be really on the rise. That was seemingly his plateau, I guess. Um, and I think Sandor Martin probably called it out correctly before the fight when he said that uh, Teofimo Lopez's weakness is is like mentally like that's his weakness. Like he's he I don't really know enough about him and his skills because he hasn't really been that consistent with his skills. You know, like he seems to be a different fighter in every single fight. Uh, but that might be a product of what Martin was saying with his, you know, somewhat weak mentality or like fragile mentality, whatever you want to call it. And I think that those kinds of displays, look, I don't think that it's bad for anybody to be questioning themselves or their self-worth or anything. That's like normal human shit, you know, like that's, it's just the kind of shit that in boxing, of course, gets seized on because it's so masculine and fucking, you know, you can't be any show, any sort of emotion that's girly and, you know, shit like that. So anytime somebody says like, you know, do I still got it? You know, like that's the kind of shit you'd see in like a bad movie scene, but so that's why I think that that got amplified so bad. But at the same time, it's also if you if you heard that from like anybody else, you might not think too much of it. But the type of shit that Lopez talks in other interviews, you know, you add that to how his dad acts and how his dad talks, you know, uh, and then Lopez inconsistent performances. It's kind of like I think that's what is a big part of what makes it so aggravating is that you've seen what he can do. And then you hear how he talks and it's like, you get amped up for that shit. And then it's, it's an inconsistent performance a lot of the times. And that's what we saw, dude. Uh, he was following Sandor Martin around. Like he wasn't really cutting off the ring. He was walking oh. into his punches for a couple rounds at a time. You know, he was just not, it looked good because he was being aggressive. And I think one of the problems was that when he did connect, even when it wasn't very clean, uh, Sandor Martin was like doing the thing almost like Nassim Ahmed, where it was like, Whoa, yeah, you know, like, back and you guess totally. And it wasn't like he wasn't hurt, like nothing was happening, but it's like dramatic. And then on top of that, his face is all fucked up from the headbutt. But it was what was the head, man? Because that was a net, was that the first round? Yeah, it was like what? not long into the first round. And then, yeah, you watched the replay too because he was bleeding from that. Was a the worst that type brutal. of thing you can imagine besides getting, you know, a ghastly gash, obviously, is like... And he has, like, a, a prominent head. nose. Yes. <laughs> so and like, you that head directly into your nose and just get a smash. I, I can't take getting punched in the nose. We talked about this the other day. That's why my boxing career faltered quickly. Um, oh, yeah, dude. You see stars. Getting someone like Lopez coming in there, charging head first and just smashing right into you. Oh. And then fighting 10 rounds as disciplined as he did with the, probably with, you know, the difficulty of breathing and everything else going on with that. Yeah, that's, and that just kind of added to it afterward. Lopez was like, look at your face. And Martin was like, that's from the headbutt, bro. Sure. I was well, just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, come on. And yeah, it, so it just, it didn't, it didn't look it's... very good, dude. And it just kind of seems to be a, a continuance of the fall from grace a little bit. I mean, after he lost, and that was a huge upset loss to Cambosis. Um, yeah, it, it seemed like he's been trying to recapture whatever magic he had from there. It's been struggling. Moving up to Junior Welterweight certainly hasn't helped him yet. I knew he wasn't able to make 135 anymore. And so that was a, you know, and he was already struggling even after he beat Lomachenko. But um, he hasn't really impressed so far at 140. The second fight didn't make any more believers out of anybody. 
And there's, there's going to have to be a lot of changes with him now, you know, in my opinion. There has to be. You know, whether he has to do something about his dad, if he wants his dad to still be there, fine, I get it. You know, it's hard to break that attachment, but you need to bring in a reasonable, like a seasoned trainer or someone else to help fine-tune you because your dad brought, you know, and kudos to him, he brought him to a certain level to where, you know, obviously to this, to this point now, but you need to do something else because clearly it's, it's not working anymore. And if you're leveling up, it's only going to get worse from here. You know what I mean? Like if he had this performance against a guy like Progress or um, Josh Taylor or any of the, you know, as uh, Matias is a junior welterweight, right? Or even a guy like Matias, Matias would probably beat the shit out of him that night. Like there's guys out there are just absolute monsters, you know, a lot, lot more tougher than um, stronger than Martin, who's just a difficult guy and will give yeah, any. He's mostly awkward. Like that's, that was what was Martin, crazy. Martin is one of those guys that we've talked about before. Just a pain in the ass. They'll yeah. give everybody shit any night. But... Not like a big puncher or nothing, but even he was kind of stinging him a little bit. And it was like, uh, oh. that's not a good And Lopez is punch resistance too. I mean, you know, there was more, yes, he was a little off balance, but yeah, he got clearly dropped in the second round. And the other one that should have been ruled a knockdown and probably cost Martin maybe the fight. Same thing. What was that, the seventh? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was later in the fight, but it was just... Yeah, yeah and that probably should have been a knockdown, Uh, but yeah, it's, it, well, and I, that's the that's the shitty thing, is that uh, because Sandor Martin is not American, he's probably not going to get another, you know, uh, like, off of this, he might not get another opportunity. I hope he does, but it's like... He deserves it, but who's gonna help? Who's gonna want to fight? Yeah, him? he's awkward. He's a he's a tough tough out, dude. And there's so, no money involved in it either. All you're gonna do is just have a rough night. Yeah, you better hope Kiko Martinez is able to gain some weight and fight that dude because that'd be a massive <laughs> fight in Spain. But you know, Javier Castillo still available? Oh, he's bro. I'm telling you, every time I uh, post something about Javier Castillo, like the Spaniards flock and they're like, ah, mm-hmm. they they love that guy. Dude, remember even Kiko said because they asked him, um, they asked him it's after like a him. hero. Yeah, they were like, "Do you feel you're better?" And he was like, "No, no, I'm you know I'm not over him." <laughs> yeah, he's he's like a fucking hero, bro. When he when he beat who was it, uh, Sturm? Yes. Yeah, like people were oh, just man. like, "Oh my god," because Sturm was huge in fucking Germany, you know. I mean, think he fought Oscar on pay per view. Imagine how massive that was over there, huh? Yeah, dude, <laughs> massive. Anyway, yeah, it's well. So back to the back to this. Yeah, we're going on some. Spanish, oh, it just it happens. <laughs> Spanish caravan here. Yeah. Um. Now it. I don't know what to do with Teofimo Lopez because going forward, fighting someone like people have mentioned fighting Regis Progre. I'm not entirely sure that's the greatest uh, style for him because he's Teofimo Lopez is the kind of guy who probably would stand and fight a little bit more than he should, and Progres oh. would come at him. You come right at him, and that that would be bad. So Progress is strong, and he has an awkward style himself that has many dimensions and layers to it. That you know, that adapts as the fight goes on. It just would have been bad for Lopez. It, maybe Lopez rises to the occasion. I don't know, but I think one thing that you said is that he does need to kind of get away from his dad. Um, it it's, looked for a little while, maybe like a a year, year and a half ago. I remember a couple of interviews where Teofimo Lopez Jr. was like you know, saying some shit, like basically suggesting that he knew his dad was bad news or that he probably should kind of get away from his dad a little bit, but that he couldn't. And I remember thinking like, all right, at least he kind of has an inkling that he should and thinking, okay, well, like there's hope. 
it doesn't really sound like he wants to, you know, it doesn't really sound like he's, he's ready to, to break away from his pop. And I can't say for sure that is what is doing it. Oh, and one last thing, dude, the exchange afterward with him asking for his kid was one of the most awkward things I've ever seen on television, bro. Yes. That was, that was up there with me, uh, for me with, um, you remember when Ishe Smith won his uh won the junior middleweight title, his belt against <laughs> I was there. I was actually there witnessed that live. And like I mean, I understand oh, he was in the moment and everything, but like he picked up his kid, he was holding it, then he got announced as the champion, then he kind of just like dropped the baby right there with him. Like <laughs> um I, yeah, yeah, I, I just it added to the whole thing. And didn't like Lopez, I heard he messed up his backflip as well. I actually, I don't know. I didn't even see that because there were there was so much, uh, there were so many like combat sports things going on at the same time. I had to like, I had to forego one of them and only watch three, and so I was I was missing shit here and there. But I was watching mostly the the Teofimo Lopez fight when that was going on. But, um, but I didn't see that part. It was just I saw the interview and I was just like, bro, I'm dying here. I'm absolutely fucking dying. So I, I feel bad for him because I do think that, you know, I do think that he probably could stand to, like, talk to somebody. Well, um, before we move on, a uh, quick question for you. Is there anybody in particular you think he'd mesh well with as a, you know, trainer wise that would be good for him? That's a... It's a good question. You know, I think that he probably would match pretty well with somebody who's going to be firm, but like quiet, like a Joe Goosen. Okay. Somebody who's going to like, you know, talk to you and give you instructions and, you know, like, but be like not bullshitting you, mm-hmm. that type mm-hmm. of person. I think somebody like that would probably be good. Um, I think he would have, you know, what? I, for whatever reason, I think he would have worked well with a guy like Emmanuel Stewart too. Maybe, yeah, and because Manny was good at because, like you know, obviously Stewart loved aggressive fighters and knew how to mold them and kind of like rebuild them into a degree or do something like I can just see I don't know if he was still alive, man. There's but so he many. He was good at making their attributes work for them too. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what he was good at too. Uh, if I he can was, see that. You know what I mean? The guys that he could have like tried to work with after that. Yeah, that was a big loss, dude. Manny dying was a big, big loss for the boxing community. Good guy. Really good guy. Talk to anybody. Luckily, he lives on with his widow. You know, they're uh, still carrying on a lot of the Kronk legacy with, at least in the community, having a lot of uh, younger fighters and younger kids getting into boxing and off the street and out of trouble. So that's that's awesome. But yeah, that was just a random thought. But I mean, there's a lot of trainers out there. Like like you said, Goosen is a good good example. Maybe Robert Garcia. Like um, if we're going quiet, maybe Virgil Hunter. Relax. With Virgil him. Hunter still active? <laughs> I don't even know. But who was it he was whispering to? <laughs> I don't remember who that was. But I that mean, was he hilarious. used to whisper to a lot. Of, like, I mean, not to go off a little bit, but like, yeah, like after Andre Ward, because everybody, once they had that one hot trainer, everybody kind of gravitates toward them. When they like, catch lightning in a bottle a little bit, and Virgil Hunter was that dude. And so like, yeah, nothing against him. I just like, remember, remember Amir Khan. Amir Khan went with them. Um, uh, what's was his it name? For Canelo or whatever. I think so. And then what was the uh, peril? Um, oh, Angulo. Yeah, Angulo. 
which was one of the most <laughs> random pairings ever, too. You know, right up there with like Georgie Benting working with Tech with, with Tex Cobb back in like you know, <laughs> 1979, <laughs> Like the guy that does the complete opposite of what you're trying to teach yeah, him. Yeah, just throwing <laughs> the kitchen sink trainer wise at him. Just you know, yeah. let's see what we can do. Nothing, then nothing can be done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna do whatever I can with this thing. Okay, sure. <laughs> It's fucking hilarious. Yeah, you know, it's uh I don't know. I I wish him the best cuz it was kind of exciting with him with Teofimo Lopez bursting onto the scene and being and a factor. And he's an exciting but... fighter. He is, man, regardless of what you think of him thing in his personality cuz he has a very polarizing personality as his dad does, you know, you can think the same way about to a to an extent uh with Danny Garcia and his dad, you know, like a decade ago when they were like hot shit back on the scene. So I get it, but again, he is an exciting fighter, though. He makes for exciting fights, and so I do hope for the best. And it looks like, because he just put out a tweet the other day, uh, today it looks like, um, with a poll saying who he should be fighting next, and he put a bunch of, like, you know, funky name, like, you know, goofy names next to the guys and stuff like that, like nicknames to them, insulting nicknames. So it looks like, you know. Hey, whatever yeah. makes the fights, dude. You know what I mean? If if that's And if that's going to get him in the mood, get him hyped up, whatever. Sure. That's fine. <laughs> but hey, dude, I'm in the mood to talk some monster. Hell yeah. Motherfucker is a monster. I love monsters. Man, that guy's nuts, bro. You know, we we mentioned Naoya Inoue earlier. Um, I think many people would kind of go back and forth, especially now. Now that Canelo lost firmly to Dimitri Bivol, uh, many people I think have who had argued for him to be the top pound for pound fighter kind of like, all right, we'll, we'll back off that. So it's an argument between Inoue and Alexander Usyk, I think. And if you're going super old school, you ain't putting heavyweights on your pound for pound list, baby. So <laughs> at least by probably by default at this point, you might be. And, and also out of spite for Terrence Crawford, mm-hmm. you, you, it's probably going to be going toward Inoue for a lot of people. And especially after this most recent performance, where he dominated and then just annihilated Paul Butler, uh, bringing a close to his bantamweight dominance, which is just another step in the a new way, you know, another rung in the a new way ladder. It's amazing, you know. He's gone from junior flyweight. He went from junior flyweight straight to junior bantamweight or super flyweight, depending on how you want to say it. And has dominated the entire way. And the only fight in which he got seriously tested and had a couple scary moments was against Nonito Donaire. Yes. And that was a it, test, by the way. In, it was a test. It was a test. <laughs> Unlike what others on, you know, Fox and Twitter may say otherwise, right? Turtleneck mother. So, yeah, he got <laughs> tested for sure. And it was a war. I mean, if it's a war, it's obviously a fucking test, which and it obviously was one of the best fights, uh, if not the best fight of that year. So clearly uh, he has been tested. But nonetheless, it is a fair point to say that he hasn't been tested a whole lot outside of that, that beyond. And that's not there's no shame in that, obviously. And that's kind of a good thing that he's been tested overall and came through that test. 
but also the kind of rub or the asterisk is he came out on the other side of that test with a fucked up eye that a lot of people are kind of concerned going forward, you know, because it was the kind of injury that could flare up. We've seen that type of thing happen more than once. And uh, but nonetheless, it's kind of just like, where does it stop, dude? Because he says he says he's still going to keep going like he's not done. He's going back. He's going 122 pounds now because he's done everything he wanted to do at 118. Um, but it's there's amazing. A every, there's a limit to everybody, bro. There is. It's just that for now, we haven't reached it for him. So it's amazing. <laughs> and I hope we don't, man. I mean, I don't, it's going to be tough. Cause like going to 122 is a lot of, is a lot of weight and guys at 122 are big. They are bigger than what they are at 118. That four pounds may not seem like a lot, but it is a lot, especially with guys who are at 122, but have the frame that they're going to build up to 126, 130, or even beyond that one day. And you get the sense that in a way is probably going to max out at 122, you know? So there's the difference right there. I'm just going to say that Dwight Muhammad Kawi. <laughs> yes, I know, man, but he, he's a, he's a freak alien. That doesn't count. He's only got like, I'm Kawi. all right. So, that, you know, I'm just saying, I weigh not one boss. I mean, you know, not there's not many guys like that or him or Montel Griffin, <laughs> who was I think was a little bit taller than Cowie, but still like a little stout dude like that. Yeah. Still <laughs> John Brown. Fucking, you know. Yeah. But I mean, like, think about yeah, Cowie 175, then bulked up to heavyweight at one point, but just you see this little just stub <laughs> out jabbing guys out and then smiling while he's Yeah, beating. grinning at him like a maniac. Yeah. Nah. that's well, the original Freddy Krueger man just I don't know what Inoue's limit is I'm happy that we haven't reached it and that it's uh I mean I it's that constant struggle that push and pull obviously you don't want to see someone invincible like you yeah. at some point everybody loses if they test themselves and he but that's the thing is that uh there have been constant complaints about great fighters in recent years many of them legitimate Mm-hmm. where if they do test themselves it's it's in a very calculated way it's in a way where they're it's a test but only so much because it's under really controlled circumstances because they're able to control a lot under the contracts or they're able to pick and choose opponents they're able to pick when they fight them where etc you know and so uh that's not to say that Inoue is not exercising these kinds of options but he's not like fucking around and like picking and choosing to that degree. He's for the most part, just fighting dudes. And so it's like, you know, I, I don't want to gush about him too much, but it's gush worthy, bro. Uh, You know, he's, he's going through these divisions and for the most, he's not shying away from the best fighters worth gushing over him that like you know before you had 10 pro fights you're knocking the shit out of a guy like omar navaris yeah a a guy who himself an absolute pain in the ass long reigning guy who nobody really wanted to fight and he probably didn't really want to fight other people you know when you're in your own little pocket for a long time i think after a while it's like "Mm, all right bro i think it's something's happening here but still a total pain in the ass and he fought him with like very little experience and you know anyway the guy is just uh he's a maniac 
So, and Paul Butler, I don't think a lot of people had very much hope for him lasting. And he even lasted much longer than many people expected. You know, people are like, oh, it's going to be first, second, third round knockout. Of course, you would expect something like that from Inoue. But even so, it was like he was never really in the fight. You know, he was never really in. He didn't try to be in the fight either, you know? That was the thing is that was the the general theme of the fight is that everyone was like, oh, he wasn't trying. He wasn't trying. You know, how much do you really want him to do? Like, he tried. He just would have been knocked out earlier. Yeah, he got it. Exactly. And I think he knew he realized that quickly. And so he was, he fell into the mind frame of that. He was, I don't think he was there to try to absolutely survive to go to distance. I'm sure he would have been happy with that. But like, every time I, I, when I was watching it, at least, I got the sense that like when he would land a flurry or like, you know, flurry or, or like, you know, trying to counter, he was hoping he was catching, he was going to catch him with some shit that would just be like, you know, catch him off guard or something that he wasn't expecting because he would sometimes like, you know, in a way you get the sense almost like triple G to a slight degree that if he gets bored in a fight, he starts like, you know, relaxing and you can hit him sometimes because he's not worried about it anymore. He realizes he's controlling. You really can't do anything to him. So if he gets hit once or twice, he's not going to think twice about it. You know what I mean? And so Butler, I think at a few times was almost at that point where he was hoping that in would fall into that type of relaxation, which he did. And that he'd be able to like catch him with some shit that would like, you know, change the course of the fight. But that never happened. He didn't have the power to do that. And I don't think he committed himself enough to do that. Where if he was able to, he would like really be able to do something. Cause Inoue already obviously showed before he took Donaire shit. Like you ain't, you know, yeah, your stuff's it, obviously not gonna be able to do that it, to him as well. It's one of those situations where you almost just have to make that call. Like early on in the fight, like am I like, am I just going to get my ass kicked for however many rounds? Or am I just going to give it everything I have? And if I get knocked out in three, I get knocked out in three. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and that's not whatever, bro. Like, I'm not I'm not judging anybody. Like, I'm not saying you need to go out there and get your ass kicked by this guy either way. But that's kind of like how it seemed. And he chose the option where he was like, let me try and see if I could figure some shit out. But that's the long odds option. You know, like, it's not it's not likely to happen. And And it didn't. And after, I think, the halfway point, I started realizing, he realized, okay, look, I don't have a chance, so let me just, you know, do what I'm doing, land a few flu- uh, few flurries here and try to stay honest and say, hey, I went the distance with him. But in no way to his credit, and this one makes him one of the best fighters on the planet, top three, pound for pound, at least, definitely, um, he stepped into another gear, and that's what great fighters do. Instead of being content, <clears throat> going the distance, Jesus, I'm losing my voice over here. Instead of being cold winter air bore. <laughs> Gotta love it. Instead of um being content going the distance, he wanted to get that finish. And so he stepped it up a little more and was able to secure it. And that wasn't easy to do because you know, guys that get very defensive and go into a shell and they don't open up and they have good defense and they have good no they're hard to fight it, because it's people- tough to yeah, when somebody doesn't engage or doesn't want to that's yeah. like it's really tough to make something happen. If they go into a fucking turtle shell, there's only so much you can do. And I'll even say this too. This wasn't one of Inoue's best performances either. I know he's been in through a lot of inactivity this year, and I don't think he was tested enough to really put on um, his best stuff. But, you know, a few of his things were a little one-dimensional. You can tell that he was just kind of going through the motions, and he wasn't even trying to, like, be, uh, you know, to the point where, like, if he really stepped it up, he could have done something earlier too, like, you know, you could read him. So 
he can't pull that same shit, obviously, once he moves to 122. But I get the sense that him being such an elite fighter, he knows that too. And so he knew this was kind of like, you know, just a run-of-the-mill type performance. But if he was going to fight someone like Fulton, for instance, then he's going to have to put on his full arsenal, then some. Sounds like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was at wild card for a bit sparring. Okay. If that's true, then he's he's had plenty of, in terms of like a diverse styles and yes. probably also sizes of fighters to spar with. So I would imagine that he's I think not. He has back in the past, I'm sure. Like well, when he was featured on HBO a couple of times, I think that was that wild card. And I and I think that uh, yeah, and I, and I'm not you know he doesn't like train out of wild card, but yeah. he's been there. And that's not to say they don't have different sizes of people in Japan to spar with or something. Just that, you know, I, obviously. I mean, it's just a different set of styles and just everything else. Well, in and it, there's just, it, it's a far bigger hub and a far mm-hmm. busier hub of boxing and sparring variety exactly. in LA, for sure. Point being just that I know that he's not ignorant to the fact that he's he's probably been in there with much bigger fighters so he knows that he has to be far more careful and he's smart. He's a, you know, he's a very, very good fighter, but I guess that kind of begs the question then. So look, he's, he's gone from junior flyweight to through flyweight over to super flyweight or junior bantamweight. And now is the bantamweight clear ruler. Uh, it begs a couple questions here. How great is he overall in the kind of pantheon of the greatest Japanese fighters of all time? Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, I, I guess uh, I'd also, I guess, wanted to kind of address a couple of the things that other people were talking about in the wake of this, because the broadcasters and the promoters were talking about he's the first ever undisputed Japanese champion and the first ever undisputed bantamweight champion. <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess the four belt era. I guess, but there was no asterisk there. You know, that's just, it was just said like that. And so anyway, yeah, I don't want to like, I don't want to be that guy who's like, uh, uh, technically, you know, all fucking day, but dude, there have been like a few dozen lineal undisputed bantamweight champions, like for a while. Like we're talking way back almost a hundred years ago type. So, I mean, it's not something new. But yeah, I guess if you want to do the whole four belt thing. Sure, but you know, like do it with other divisions if you want, like the junior ones that haven't been around since the inception of Bach. Like you can't use the division like Bantamweight that's been around since the 1800s or, um, you know, like like there's different divisions where you just cannot make a stupid comment like that. You know what I mean? Unless you got to put that saying the four belt era. You want to say four belt era? Fine. Leave it at that. Do not say in history. Because that's just factually wrong. Yeah, it's There's just not, people like us incorrect. that are going to call you out on that. It's just <laughs> incorrect, and it also he's not the first ever undisputed Japanese fighter ever either. Like, and I mean, oh. and obviously, you know, we're talking just lineal champions here, like the champion, not like, come on, dude. That's kind of the problem with this kind of four it's belt. Actually, era an insult to a legend in Japan that's still alive too. Hello. It's, yeah. And well, and that's and that's a. Uh, yeah, dude. And that I guess the problem that arises for me is that like when do you pinpoint the start of the four belt era? And the point is you don't, dude. You can't. I guess the only thing you can do is say when Bernard Hopkins won the WBO and he held all four, maybe, maybe that's when it started. But if that's the case, then you got to do some weird trickery with a couple other divisions, man. I'm just saying. 
So whatever, it doesn't really matter that much to kind of nitpick through the whole belts and shit. I no, guess back back to the yeah. I just I guess I'm a dick and needed to point out that they're wrong. But <laughs> so they were wrong. You're the totally- first, but the first question though, where where does he kind of word in your opinion? Where do you think a new way figures into the the greatest fighters, the greatest Japanese fighters of all time? He's right there. I mean, I don't have a definitive list or a top. Oh, yeah, sure. Totally. Like, no, he he ranks right up there, man, for the accomplishments that he's made so far in his career. If you look at the depth of his competition and what he's accomplished, I mean, he's, you know, he's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And for anyone to be like, oh, he hasn't been tested, which he has been tested. uh, A credit to him, though, for the guys that he's fought. He's just blown them the fuck away. You know what I mean? Like, what can you say about that? That shows you how great he is, too. Look at that, um, the Emmanuel Rodriguez one, for instance, right? Where he knocked the hell out of him in two rounds of what Rodriguez uh, recently has been, been able to do. You got uh, the Jamie McDonald win. You got all the way back, what we said, from Navarez. And that's not even counting um, the former champions and other guys that he's just, like, dominating and blasted out. Like, he, he's just proven himself to be, like, an overall all-around package. So it's not just the power that he exhibits because that's incredible power. Like he has speed, the athleticism, the overall, just like the, you know, the technical aspect of his thing. Like he's, you know, the dude is at the peak of his powers right now. And he has a skill set that gets people excited about the young, like the smaller divisions. I'm like, we haven't seen, you know, since like, um, there goes my voice again, um, like a young Chocolatito since like Ricardo Lopez, um, Mark Johnson, you know, the days of Danny Romero, Johnny Tapia, like um, Chiquita Gonzalez, Michael Carbajal. This is the type of shit that gets people excited about the lower weight divisions. You know what I mean? Guys like that. And, you know, with all those type of fighters back then, not even Lopez, who made the pound for pound list and was a perennial person on it for decades, has ascended as high as um, as Inoue has now. Because Inoue in some people is number one pound for pound. If anything, he's no lower than number three. That's incredible. I mean, dude, we're only a couple of years, and I'm not. I know this is like so so like me to harp on something like this, but dude, it's an easily accessible example <laughs> for me, and it's also somebody who has risen to prominence a little bit more since saying something like this. Remember BJ Flores? I even wrote a stupid little. Oh joke. my god! Yeah, I wrote a stupid yeah. little joke song about because it was in response to when it was the first time Golovkin and Chocolatito were featured on that twin like the the twin bill remember yes. on HBO yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and totally. so people were like oh shit you know Chocolatito is finally getting to HBO and you know because he had kind of basically languished on pay-per-view undercards at best mm-hmm. before then and it was it was kind of slow going you know he had dominated for that's what people don't understand is he had dominated for so long in the lower weights before really getting a chance at the prime time and that that's why like the the what people most people saw of chocolatito was like latter day chocolatito that's what we're getting now is we're like end of the road chocolatito and that's still how fucking good he is but the point is that bj flores in response to him being on hbo was saying something to the effect of you know, lower weight fighters suck, you know, they're never like, why are we featuring this? Like, they're not even fun to watch. I can't take them seriously. And that was my response to him was writing a joke song, calling him a dick, because it was like, what? 
are you dumb? You know, like you don't know much about the history of this. And now, of course, he's Jake Paul's trainer. And, you know, when every time, every time he opens his mouth, boxing scenes like, oh, look what BJ Flores said. So that, you know, anyway, did it influence much? Probably not. But even so, it doesn't help, dude. You know, it doesn't help when uh, a handful of years ago, people are saying, dude, we don't want nothing to do with these lower weights. What the fuck? Pretty much anything sub featherweight people were like, no Mm -mm. and we've come a fucking long way dude now it's like we're actually seeing a lot of these lower weights featured they had an entire thing on hbo before they crapped out with the whole superfly thing you know it was was great dude so obviously we've been seeing a rise what's that in a way it was one of the guys featured too dude it's it's incredible that we've seen a, a bit of a turnaround with mm-hmm. that, and uh, a lot of these lower weight fighters featured more and more and more, and a new A is continuing to uh, well, the the conundrum there is that he's moving up in weight, but still he's continuing to you know be a an advocate for a lot of these lower weight fighters. Thank goodness, because that's so where a lot of the action from, is. So he jumped from flyweight, right, uh, from junior flyweight to uh, to junior bandweight, like skip flyweight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bandweight. So this is gonna be his fourth division. You know, I don't, I'm not saying that would happen, but like you almost get that vibe of like him trying to pull out Arguello, wondering if it's going to be too much at one point. You know, that's and, the. And you wonder who could be like his prior. You know what I mean? Like who would be the guy to solve him? And that's kind of what I meant about the whole, about what I was saying uh, earlier is that like he's not cherry picking like belts. Like he's not just like, oh, let's see who I can pick off and call myself a fucking 19 division champion. You know, he's going like systematically, like yeah. fighter by fighter. You know what I mean? That's and that's different. And and that's kind of like how Arguello did it. Too. And that's I was just gonna say, that's not too dissimilar from how Arguello was doing it. And that's how real champions do it. You know, you don't go cherry picking in divisions, like you seek out the best fighters of the division and you say, you know what, I'm gonna go up there, I'm gonna fight that guy and do what he had to do. Like when Arguello, uh, he beat Ruben Oliveras for his first title. Then he moved up to junior lightweight. He fought Ascalara, who was a very underrated champion now looking back. Beat him twice. Moved up to lightweight to fight Jim Watt, who was a pain in the ass to fight anybody. Um, retired him. And then when he moved up to junior welterweight, you know, he could have fought Saul Mambe, who was a very good fighter in himself. And I love Mambe, rest in peace. But he decided to fight Aaron Pryor, who was the rampaging maniac that just, you know, of course, and look what happened in those two fights. So, like, in New Way, I would love to see him fight against a guy like Stephen Fulton, you know, Fulton or one of those dudes. It, just, <laughs> and they, you know, it, they, yeah, look, you see, man, you celebrate right there, man. Like, that's that's as good as some lamb chops for me right now, bro. Like, I just thinking about that shit. And give me goosebumps. I, I, that's, but this is boxing, so of course, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but, like, I mean, you know, those are the like the thing is what I love about Inoue and what makes him one of my favorite fighters to watch and what makes him such a fan favorite for everybody is that that's the type of fight he wants. Like when he moves up to 122, that's what he's going to be seeking out. He's not going to seek out somebody he knows he can clearly beat, even though I know he has the copy, he has the confidence to be thinks he can beat anybody, but he's going to seek out the toughest challenge for him. Yeah, dude, there's that's there's absolutely no question. And I think that one of the things about, uh, you know, the Japanese boxing history is really interesting. And I don't want to go through the whole thing because we've, we actually had already done 
an episode a while back about the greatest Japanese fighters of all time. And I talked a lot more about like the history of like, you know, how boxing came to Japan and whatnot. But so I'm not going to go through all that, but. Or should um, we? It's, it's like a no way's place now in this, in history, more or less. And and I think that, yeah, and it's also important to, to again, also recognize that we've come far, not just with the lower weight fighters, but also with, um, I guess, just respecting Japanese combat sports more and more in recent mm-hmm. decades. Um, even dude, like Pride FC is one of my favorite combat sports like ever, like organizations. And thankfully, you can find the vast majority of them on YouTube at this point and still watch them and shit like that. But even in a lot of like a lot of those pride events and there were even some boxers and shit who fought there but you would hear shit like they had uh their bushido series and it yep. was always like you know sorry maro but, but with the whole like the way of the samurai spirit bushido warrior japanese and it was like bro like and especially now like two decades later that shit is like ugh. you know it's kind of fucking cringy bro and it's also kind of like icky stereotypical and now we're kind of starting to understand like i was saying earlier the richness and the diversity in styles and whatnot and outlooks in the japanese boxing scene it's far more than that it's not just like okay here's this block of fighters who are they're all just do or die let's applaud them no dude there's a lot of skill going on there and there's a lot of development of styles and shit like that that's been going on a long time that's what's that's what I think a lot of people have missed and are now slowly starting to understand more and more that you know Naoya Inoue is not uh you know like one of the one of the fighters that we had mentioned earlier um gosh what uh Wajima you know like uh they're far in decades past some of these other fighters who had come from Japan got mashed into that stereotype where they're just warriors who are coming forward and they're going to bleed especially wajima bro koichi wajima the junior middleweight champion and he was wild you know so like beyond wild i don't mean to like to to go off like to to think about this bro because you have viewed me on this there's not a lot of wajima footage on on youtube but there's enough that you can gauge exactly what you were talking about Dude was all out, didn't block a punch with anything but his face. Just came waiting. Hey, I love it. So do I, man. Like, his fights are fun to watch. Like, but, you know, it's... But there's far more to Japanese boxing than that. And that's what it's been pigeonholed into for a long time. Especially, too, man, the way he would go in, and it's kind of fascinating to think that he was, like, a three-time junior midway champion. It shows you how desultory that division was in the early (laughs) stages of it before... Guys like Maurice Hope and you know Wilfred Benitez and others. It was like do- it was like dominated by the Italians for a while, you know. What I'm yeah, saying? yeah, yeah. I mean Rocky Machicholi and everything, but like yeah, Akardagi from Germany and whatever. But um, if you watch that, like you said, face first, wading in, just sloppily in fighting and all that, and like the two fights where he um where he really gets the shit knocked out of him is against um Oscar Alvarado, who uh um. um who recently passed away was a longtime junior middleweight and welterweight contender, and also you know, um, champion for a handful of months uh, from Texas. And then Eddie Gazzo, another early junior middleweight champion from Nicaragua. And the same thing, Koishiyama just waiting, 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 and finally he just wears out, wears out, and the guy kind of hits him with like a lazy one-two in the fourteenth round, and he just falls in pieces and just lays there dramatically unconscious <laughs> while the crowd goes to a hush tone and you hear the announcers freaking out. Ah, you know, 
And then they come in. I mean, I love Japanese boxing because even when a foreigner would win, like they still treat him like a god and they bring in those giant ass trophies that are three times the size of you. And I always wondered how you get those <laughs> customs to bring back to home. <laughs> yeah, dude, that one of the best uh, photos of that is Miguel Canto flyweight. And he's yeah. holding the trophy and that shit is like 19 feet tall. And he's like, Ugh. yeah. That's like, do they take those home with them? Like what happened? Or they just pose with them? I what? have no idea. I have, I don't even know, but you've chill. Miguel Canto is still alive. We should ask him. I'm sure because um, he was expanded so much. I'm sure he probably has a fucking room full of them after that. For sure, dude. He fought a, a number of Japanese fighters and a handful of uh, South Korean ones too, I believe. But um, but yeah, dude, it's uh, it's definitely a different scene from what okay. Americans are used to. And it's obviously, there's the emphasis on a lot of different things. There's a different from what a lot of Americans are used to. The pageantry, for one, is uh, there's a different emphasis on that. I personally, I love it. And I think a lot of that comes from, and we talked about this with Gray a little bit on our episode. We're talking about like Japanese pro wrestling and its connections to boxing, where I think a lot of the combat sports culture in Japan does stem from its associations with boxing or, or with pro wrestling. And the a lot of the fighters, especially in MMA, in early Japanese MMA, we're also pro wrestlers. And so when we started seeing the rise of like more like, you know, ring walks and stuff like that, like they'd have like the choreographed ring walks, like Genki Sudo and shit like that was doing all the shit. And there's now that's fairly commonplace to have this big to do before the fights and like a whole bunch of shit. And like um, there's often other entertainment to go along anyway they do it up big dude and it's different from what i think a lot of americans expect from from fight cards so i like that shit a lot but um but also like i was saying talking about the history of japanese boxing and the fact that it's you know diversified and become more recognized for that in recent years you mentioned earlier uh that there's still one of the greatest japanese fighters of all time if perhaps the greatest depending on who you ask i mean and i guess there's arguments either way but masahiko fighting harada who i mean he he might be one of the top few bantamweights of all time perhaps the greatest others would probably say it or joffre however he beat it or joffre twice so it's you know it's funny how that works because that can work that way but still you know uh I would say that it's it's pretty damn close as far as accomplishments. He was a lineal champion in two different divisions, which is massive. You know, and I, I still, it's almost like when people want to compare, you know what, I would, it's, it, Pat, you might, you'll probably agree with me. Um, and no way going head to head with um, fighting Harada is kind of similar to how people compare um, Chocolatito and Alexis. Cuero. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I, I'm just saying, you know what yeah. I mean? And, like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to put a new way who's made some incredible accomplishments already, but, like, fighting Harada, the biggest, like, his two biggest, uh, his title wins, think about it, like, he beat Pone Kingpech, who for years and years and years was denied Hall of Fame access and should have been a long time ago, one of the greatest, um, one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, I never understood that at all incredible fighter you know what i mean who longevity himself and the guy way he was able to regain the title first against fighting harada second against um uh ibahara after getting knocked out in the first round you know and then regaining it again a third time like he 
King Petch was that dude, just a great fighter. And Harada beat him as a teenager. I think he was what, like 19 when he knocked him out. Yeah. Like it was wild. He looked super young too. He did, yeah. He was a fucking baby in that fight. You know, he looked like short round in uh, Indiana Jones. Like he looked like a kid, like super, yeah, you he, know. He did look super young. Yeah. And um, so that win on, on its own is probably still is bigger than anything in a way is accomplished, even for the two Donaire fights. And then, like, then he moves up and he beats Joffrey, who's just, I, you know, his accomplishments on its own. We've talked about it countless times. We don't have to go over it. Puts him on an elite level, unlike almost anybody else. And he beat him twice. So, you know, it's still all those years later, man. He still has to be on that pedestal for me, at least. Yeah, and I mean... Not, I to, think... say that, not to say that in a way he won't be on his way to eventually surpass him. He's still young. And he still has a lot to That's accomplish. That's what's there. scary. He's on the fast track to eventually doing that too. Exactly. That's the scariest part about it. That's what's scary is that, I mean, we're not trying to put the cart before the horse here, but he has shown no signs of slowing down. He's still very young. He's still scary as ever. But yeah, man, 122's a, 122's a, that's a bear, dude. Especially, you know, somebody like a Steph, uh, cool boy Steph, dude. Yeah, that's a that's quite the stylistic matchup because I mean that's that's something where you're gonna see we already know about Inoue's power. There's no question about that, but we're really we would really I think see the, whether or not his skills would get stretched in a fight like that, and they might, dude. You know, Steph Fulton is razor fucking fast and sharp. Damn. I love that. I'm oh, damn it. Get me somebody right now on the horn. I'm, we need to make that fight. Fuck. That's probably, I'm being honest, that's probably my most looked upon, my look forward to fight of 23, if it can be made. Because, yeah. I don't see why not. I mean, it's not, at least I don't see any big well, reason Well, I mean, not. is Fulton, what, he fights on Showtime. Is he with PBC? I think so, but I mean, that doesn't, to my knowledge, there's no... Well, well I mean, I, mean, I know, in a way, I mean, like, Bob Arum and Top Rank claim that they, you know, they're promoters of NOA, or at least the American promoters are... What the hell do they really do? Yeah, that, what are the fuck? They, what? they put him in the bubble, what? Once yeah, they haven't say, yeah, they haven't said fucking mum about him in like a year and a half, bro. No, and someone, someone tweeted today that they said, oh, you know, uh, oh, I talked to Aram about him, and Aram said, yeah, yeah, at least we're definitely going to bring him to America next year to fight again. And Yippee. I thought that it was cool the the poster that they made for when he was here. What was that? Maloney, I think. Yeah. Yes. Excuse me, that monster poster they made. That was cool. I liked that. But I mean, that that in and of itself doesn't mean you were promoting them great. I'm sorry. I mean, the the whole point is this, dude. Look, like uh not that I'm saying to you, but anybody listening or whoever who I guess is misunderstanding it's your fucking job as the promoter, yeah. dude. And that was my whole thing with Terrence Crawford in top rank is like, why are you talking shit about the guy you're supposed to be promoting? You know, like your, your job as a promoter is to get their name out there is to help make them look good to sell them, etc. But if you're not mentioning them, sure. nobody gives a fuck. And so it's kind of, but that's kind of in my opinion or in my view, that's what's been happening. And perhaps it's a thing where, and I'm not I'm not trying to just needle it into top rank, 
because perhaps it is a thing where they are only his like American promoters and he mostly does business out of Japan, in which case, what are they going to do? Like they don't really get too much out of it. So what the fuck? Okay, whatever. You know, I don't, I'm not a business person. I'm simply saying it looks kind of icky if you're taking credit when he does great, but then like, you're not really doing much for him stateside, not trying to get him over here or in, in not in terms of getting him over here, but who heard much about this fight happening? Yeah, exactly. But all that like being said, wars, too, but that's it. Exactly. No, totally. You know, it's I still, you know, looking at a list of um, certain, uh, Jap- you know, former Japanese champions. I'm already putting a new way up uh, above a lot of them now, too, you know. And which is that's incredible. Like, I might already I would probably already rank them over Gushiken. Um, Definitely. Um, you know, and um you would have him over Gushiken. I would have him over you know, Yoko Gushiken, that is one of my favorite guys with the Jap, you know, the Afro. Um, yeah. Yeah. Junior flyweight champion of the early eight, uh, late seventies, early eighties, hall of famer himself, Hiroki Yoka, who, um, if you're familiar with him at all, that's because you know of it. Is that is, is he the uncle of a uh, Kazuta? Kazuri? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure they're related, but, um, Hiroki uh, Yoko was an inaugural strawweight champion, lost it early on, but then scored one of the biggest upsets in junior fly history. And when he moved up and he beat um, Myung-woo Ya and gave him the only loss of his career. And Ya obviously is in the Hall of Fame today. You know, another guy you can bring up too, Yoshiaki Numata, who was um, junior lightweight champion. What was it back in like the, the 60s and early 70s era? Very, very tough guy. Scored victories over countless dudes, including a one-punch, beautiful knockout over a guy like Raul Rojas. And um, most famously, there's a FOMO, uh, there's a photo of him getting knocked out by uh, Mondo Ramos, former lightweight champion. Ramos being dragged away and Numata laying there, clutching his gut like he just got stabbed or something. You know, it was pretty dramatic shit. But regardless, you know, and also, too, you have to mention the, um, the Salvador Sanchez of Japanese boxing, Masaho Oba who, um, had he not passed away at the young age, I think around the same age as Sanchez, around 23 in the early 70s, um, who knows what he would have accomplished as champion. So Yeah, obviously did not reach even the heights of uh, Salvador Sanchez, but it within Japan. But, but they, yeah, in comparison, that's what they were considering, yeah. Yeah, within Japanese boxing, still within, almost kind of like a, um, what was his name? Was the Australian dude? Was that Les Darcy? Yeah. Les Dancy, yes, Dave Sands. Dave Sands, the yeah, the dude who died in the truck act, the the yeah, yeah, it was Dave Sands, not Les Darcy. Um, yeah, and definitely taken out early, unfortunately, and many still wonder like what what he could have potentially accomplished had that not happened. But he's still even then among one of the greater fighters and one of the greater Japanese fighters for sure. But you know, one of the crazy things also is that there have been a number of fighters who have who have uh, who are clearly among the greatest Japanese fighters of all time who've come in the last like twenty to twenty five years or so. Tons and, of them, absolutely. And you know, there was a uh, definitely a bit of a like a a surge, especially in the early two thousands, 
why that was, to be honest, I, I truly don't know, but, but I fucking love it, especially because I mentioned around that time, I've mentioned many times before was when I had first started doing like tape trading and stuff like that. And so for me, like that type of shit, when I was getting like fights from like the, the Asian traders, that it was like shit I'd never seen before yes. and, and fighters I had only read about and heard about and was like, Oh, so that whole fuck, they're good. Holy shit. You know? It wasn't because, <laughs> like I said, it was always like tucked off. Nobody fucking knew. Like and we said, man, we came from the Koizumi era of like ring magazines and stuff where we just read about these guys. Like this so, pre-YouTube, pre yeah. area. You had to know somebody to get these tape trading too. I didn't know nobody as a teenager. I So I, I'm definitely lucky that I saw at least some of these fighters in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, like not like before everybody, but at least at the time while they were still active. Or at least, uh, you know, and some of them have come even more recent than that. You know, Hazumi Hasegawa, yes. really, really good fighter. Uh, also a bantamweight who, you know, made his mark for sure among the top uh, Japanese fighters of all time. Kazuto Ioka, who you, you know, you mentioned the Ioka name. You know, obviously, uh, another top fighter from recent years, Akira Yegashi. Akira Yegashi, unfortunately, for him anyway, Chocolatito stepped up and smashed in a really fun, fun fight. fighter though. he's always been a fun fighter with yeah that was a that itself even was a fun fight because he's always coming you know for he's he's coming to put on a show I and mean, he, he does he does he just you know he's a detriment to himself poor guy what was that uh was that yagashi porn promuk or whatever that that wild <laughs> fight the crazy ass fight yeah yeah he's he's always in some good shit you know even the the kameda brothers for the most part Koki. i love the kameda brothers i ain't gonna front they were they were just fun entertainment. <laughs> yeah, Koki is probably the most accomplished of them, but they're all you know fun to, and they've all kind of made their mark, especially in recent years. So yeah, dude, there have been a lot of uh, in recent years really really good Japanese fighters, and I would say that not to denigrate them or put them down whatsoever, but Inoue has probably surpassed everybody that we've mentioned apart from fighting Harada and you yeah. know maybe. Maybe Ebihara, maybe, possibly. Yeah, that's a good, but, that's a good shout. But, but even so, think about that. At this time, right now, and he's already right at that cusp. And if he moves up to one twenty-two, and that, that, that's it, that would, it would be really tough to argue for anybody else because he would just have the, he would have the quality and the quantity. You know. It, it's pretty wild, you know, to be living in the age of Inoue. So it's it's really cool, though. Like I said, it's really cool that we're getting to see far more focus on uh, Asian fighters in general, Japanese fighters more specifically, and also lower weight fighters, dude. It's a really cool kind of mesh and confluence where hopefully there's some learning. Hopefully there's some paying attention. Yeah, man. You know, like we've said before, I think uh, lower weight divisions because of you know, the way access is now to watch anything you really want to in terms of boxing is out there. They've gotten the most popular they've ever been, you know, much more popular than they were in the 90s, even the early 2000s, hell, even five years ago. So uh, let the good times roll, man. I think this is going to be the momentum that we're going to keep on going forward. And um, there's a contingent on boxing Twitter, you know, hardcore fans, very hardcore fans. And there's a lot of them, too. I'm mean, going to say it's just a small amount. There's a lot of fans that get up and get very excited about these junior divisions, smaller divisions, and will wake up in the early wee hours in the morning to follow these dudes. So, you know, kudos to guys like Chocolatito and Estrada and um, the other 
the other ones that rounded up the junior bantamweights that were doing this earlier on, like Quadras and, you know, Sistriket and shit. And then um, moving up now with, like, with um, with the Monster, I mean, you know, these are the guys right now that have been, like, really building this, so. Yeah, dude, it's uh, it's it's pretty wild, and it's really cool, definitely. Yep. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that also, I think, cements a lot of hardcore fans together, for sure. Because you do have to look a little bit harder for it sometimes. So that's another cool thing, for sure. But hey, man, you know, we talked a little bit of history. We talked about a, we talked a little shit about contemporary nonsense. <laughs> you know, I guess there's there's always a plethora, dude. There's no shortage of bullshit going on in boxing for us to mess around with. But hey, man, I appreciate it. Always good to to shoot the shit with you, bro, for sure. Yeah, this was a blast as always. So as always, man, I hope everyone else listened to it and enjoyed it as well. Yeah, dude, I just wanted to also give like a brief shout out because there have been, you know, the some of the regulars who have been tuning in, you know, Ted Coggs, uh, Reggie Dunlop, Lee Gormley, some of these dudes have been giving shout really nice shout outs to us lately, which I really, really appreciate. Um, you know, it kind of stokes the fires a little bit and helps helps me anyway it definitely gets me going but it also it seems it to well. it seems to help get some new eyes on the show and for totally. the most part people seem to enjoy it so anyway speaking of the show if you listened in through one of these newfangled podcast apps that they have with these youngsters these days thank you so much go ahead and subscribe give us a rating but if you watched on youtube Hello, thank you also, and subscribe, leave us a comment, but social media is where it's at, right? Uh-huh. The Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram, but also it's on Twitter too, for now, and individually, we're also on Twitter. My dude Eris is on there as Punch Zone Eris, and me, I'm on there as Patrick M. Connor. Say hello. Eris, talk to you soon, bro. Have a good one, y'all. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.